arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The tragic surrender of Austria to the German military machine commenced when the former Austrian Chancellor Kurt von Schuschnigg failed to satisfy the demands of the German Führer. Immediately following a meeting at Hitler's chalet in the Bavarian mountains, Schuschnigg, defying Hitler, said, Austria will stand or fall with a special German mission. And he added, we are a Christian state, a German state and a free state. And in this country, everyone is equal before the law. But within a few short hours, all peoples around the globe were electrified to learn that what Bismarck dreamed of but could not accomplish came to a thundering realization with Germany's lightning-like invasion of Austria. Robert P. Fitton here. The 1930s in Nazi Germany symbolizes the worst of mankind. The lies and treachery of Hitler and his gang instilled fear not only within Germany and its occupied territories, but around the rest of the world. In Bucolic, Iowa, Andy Reese knows that saving Professor Geiger's life at the fair relies on the honesty of the enclave so far ahead in time around Ganymede. Conversely, Andy is sometimes lost in the beauty of the endless Iowa cornfields, and he is bolstered by the forthrightness of the people that he meets. The whole way of life is symbolized by freedom, but is Geiger's survival the focal point in time leading to a better way of life, or will Geiger bring forth the world that Andy left through the Atos? Faith and trust in what the Enclave told him is his only answer. And what of the monkeys? Onward we go to episode four of I Have Seen the Future by Robert P. Fitton. I Have Seen the Future, chapter 14. With a worn axe handle in his hand, Andy tended to smash the insulator glass. He turned in the barnyard as an enclosed little green Chevrolet truck with a wide chrome grille zoomed through John Appel's front gate. Lucy and her mother, Ned and John, appeared on the porch. The bacon, eggs, and hash browns from breakfast hung in the air as Andy pitched the handle behind a wood rain barrel and headed toward the truck. A middle-aged man in baggy, cocky pants and a white cotton shirt stepped out of the passenger's door and surveyed the barnyard. He was accompanied by the driver, an Iowa Highway Safety Patrolman in a chocolate brown shirt and tan trousers with a gun on his left side. Lucy, notebook under her arm, hurried over to him. Looks like the professor is early. How did the law get involved in this? asked John Appel as he shook hands. I'm Trooper Altman. I'm hearing orders from Chief McConnell. We called the Highway Safety Patrol because of your report, Mr. Appel. I'm Gerald Jenkins, University of Chicago. Jenkins swung a backpack over his shoulders. Well, I guess that makes sense. More sense than that thing in the water, said John. Well, I apologize for our early arrival, said Jenkins. He opened the rear doors and dragged out a long wood pole and a new galvanized metal bucket. Well, the creek is down this way, said John. John motioned them around the barn. As they walked down the path to the field, 
Lucy stared at the trooper's gun. You have your gun on the wrong side. Lucy, said her mother. It's called cross-drawing, young lady. We carry our guns that way after we had a trooper murdered back in 36. How did that happen? Did you know him? My daughter is very inquisitive, said John as they started through the field. Happened up on Highway 61 near Fairport. Stolen vehicle and the suspect pointed a gun at him and told him to get in the car. They struggled and the trooper was shot several times. He died the next day. Lucy had her marble notebook open and held her pencil in her right hand. May I have your number at the college? Jenkins hesitated and then looked over his glasses. JU6382 in Chicago, if you must contact the operator. You'll get the main number of the college and they can connect you to the physics department. Thank you, she said as she put the pencil in the notebook and closed it. Jenkins unfolded a geological map and adjusted his glasses. What is the status of the object in the river? It hasn't moved, answered Andy. He traced something on the map. This is Harper's Creek, correct? Correct, answered John. I must say that what you described, Mr. Rappel, is very odd. Well, what the hell do you think I got you down here for? Jenkins pushed his chin back toward his throat before he spoke. I will, of course, retrieve the object and get it back to Chicago for observation. He glanced at Trooper Alton. If there's any trouble, we have the trooper right here. I would just shoot the thing, said Andy. That is not my first choice, young man. Several minutes later, in the humid heat at the river's edge, Jenkins, having donned a wide-brimmed straw hat from his backpack, placed the metal bucket and wood pole on the riverbank grass. The orange sphere cast a faint haze through the sky's blue reflection in the water. Jenkins checked the area for radioactivity with a small black box with a large dial. After a series of clicking noises, he declared no danger existed on the riverbank. He would have to check it again when the insulator was brought to shore. Alton held up the galvanized bucket, and Jenkins jimmied the pole through the bucket handle. Jenkins then used the tape to secure the bucket to the pole. We're ready, he said. Alton acted as a fulcrum as Jenkins threaded the pole through the trooper's clasped hands. The bucket glistened in the sunlight as it skimmed the moving water. He nodded at Alton, and the trooper dipped his hands. Jenkins then maneuvered the bucket into the water. Scooping up the sphere seemed easy enough, but the professor had difficulty getting the insulator into the bucket. Over the next 15 minutes, after repeated attempts, he sat on the riverbank, removed his hat, and patted his red handkerchief on his forehead. You want me to try that? asked Ned. Oh, Nettie always catches fish, said Lucy. Be my guest, answered Jenkins. He tucked the handkerchief in his shirt pocket. Ned kicked off his shoes. Andy and John held him under the arms and walked into the stream. As a slight breeze ruffled his thick brown hair, he repeatedly sent the bucket below the surface and into the currents. A few minutes later, he called out, Something rolled into that bucket! John and Andy retreated toward the shore, and Ned hoisted the bucket upward. Water gushed from the metal container as it broke the surface. Take it slow, son, take it slow, said Jenkins. Still held by Andy and John, Ned's bare feet gained traction on the riverbank. As the galvanized bucket reached the shore's edge, Jenkins edged closer with the handheld box. He bent over as the bucket was lowered onto the grass. 
The orange pulsing reflection on Jenkins's face was eerie. No radiation, he proclaimed and set the box down. What do you think it is, Professor? asked Lucy, holding her pencil on the notebook. I must say, Mr. Pell, that I am baffled. Everyone gathered around the bucket. The bottom of the green-tinted insulator was smeared with creosote and dirt, but the orange glow was composed of hundreds of tiny, moving, cell-like objects. The swarm of post-biological life that Andy had feared now hummed in the bucket less than a meter away. He held Jenkins' wrist. We need to destroy this. Oh, this is going back to Chicago, Mr. Reese. I'm getting it to the lab. I've never seen anything like this. I'll ask my daughter's question. What in God's name is it? I always like to have the data before I offer a scientific opinion, Mr. Rappel. How about a little speculation? asked Lucy, creasing her brow as she rocked her shoulders. His azure eyes darted between Lucy and the bucket. He extended his lower jaw and raised his bushy gray brows. Speculation! I think opening this up could be deadly. Not radioactive now, but deadly. We could be dealing with something we don't understand. Just get rid of it now, shouted Andy, and he held Jenkins's wrist. Alton yanked an oversized handgun, cross-drawn from the holster. Stand back, Reese. You have no right to be interfering with this. Put the gun away, Alton, said John. He released his grip. Jenkins, his lined face grim, now planted himself in front of the bucket. I'm bringing this back to where my colleagues and I will study it in great detail. And that's what we'll be doing, Reese, said Alton, speaking with authority even though he had placed his gun back in his holster. Andy said nothing, but he felt Lucy's gentle touch on his forearm. He glanced at Alton as she brought him three or four meters back. Jenkins lifted the pole again and threaded it through the bucket handle. You need help with that? asked Harley. Yes, that would be appreciated. With Harley on one end and Jenkins on the other end, the hanging bucket glowed, swaying, spilling, and humming as they edged their way from Harper's Creek. Andy inwardly berated himself for not having come down to the shore when he had the time. He should have dived in the water, brought the insulator on shore, and smashed it apart. Around 15 meters behind the bucket, Lucy hiked with him along the path cut through the soybean fields. Jenkins was transporting something he would never control and might even kill him, but he could be unleashing the monkeys to multiply. Andy picked up a good-sized rock and gripped it. I would say a rock is no match for a gun, Mr. Reese, said Lucy, whispering in his ear. Andy dropped the rock to the dirt. Those things need to be destroyed, not studied. The breeze picked up and she held his arm. Andy, he's a scientist. Professor Geiger would say that the fireflies are something that should be studied and thought out. Thinking about Hitler doesn't get rid of him. Things innately evil must be destroyed. That's the only way. Alton relieved Jenkins up ahead. As he watched the bucket, Andy thought about evil. Maybe saving Geiger made no sense. The hot sun warmed his shoulders and arms across the wide field. His actions simply narrowed down to trusting the Enclave story. Andy, I have to ask you a question. Sure, he said, staring at the bucket ahead. When we get to the New York World's Fair, would you bring me up on the parachute ride? He stopped and slowly turned. Then he smiled and put his hand on her shoulder. I thought it was another question about the insulator. 
The fear isn't all innovations in big buildings. There's a whole aquatic show and a midway, just like the state fair. He guided her forward. Well, that would be a welcome relief just to go over there and have a good time. You can't be all work, Mr. Reese, she said, taking his elbow over a rough section of the path. Andy produced a coy grin as he peered into her dark eyes. Parachute it is. When they reached the barnyard, Jenkins set the bucket on the straw in the barn. He conferred with Alton for several minutes. Alton then headed for his truck and opened the door. Once inside, he said something into the police radio. A voice cracked back as Jenkins put his foot on the running board. Jenkins turned to the appels. I'm going to need a large jar, large enough to accommodate that sphere, and the jar should be filled with water. I can get that, replied Lucy with her notebook under her arm. She ran up the porch steps. The screen door slammed and she entered the farmhouse. Andy wandered back to the barn bench. He sat down and nervously shook his foot in the dirt. A few minutes later, Lucy returned with both hands, grasping a water-filled, oversized mason jar. She carried it down the porch steps and across the yard. Alton, crossing the yard, immediately grabbed the jar and lugged it to Jenkins, waiting in the barn. Andy pursed his lips as Jenkins positioned the jar atop a new wooden storage crate. Harley and Ned hoisted the pole as Jenkins used the long-handled rake to tilt the bucket over the jar. As the creek water spilled from the bucket, the luminescent insulator, slightly bigger than a large tomato, slid with a splash into the water-filled jar. For a second, the hum got louder. Andy stood at the bench and stared at the intricate motion as the glass sphere slowly settled at the bottom of the mason jar. He gradually shuffled forward, Lucy turning from the house with her notebook, joined him at the entrance. Jenkins produced a small pair of black opera glasses to magnify the sphere. Bugs of some kind. Monkeys, mumbled Andy. What was that? asked Lucy. Monkeys? Nothing, nothing, nothing. I say fireflies. Jenkins handed the glasses to Alton. The trooper caught only a glimpse, shrugged his shoulders, and shook his head. John Appel bent over and stared at the illuminated sphere. Then he twisted around his wide eyes. Damn thing's alive, it's buzzing. Two boys had similar reactions, but Lucy was patient. She gave her notebook to Andy and then peered through the glasses from three angles until Mrs. Appel called from behind. Lucy, these men need to remove the object. Lucy studied the movement for a few more seconds. Then she backed up almost in slow motion and placed the glasses in Alton's hand. She was deep in thought. Her brow heavily creased and she sat on the bench. Andy handed the notebook back to her. Then she began scribbling on the notebook page. Andy sat next to her as Jenkins again studied the insulator. Lucy, what do you think? She stopped writing, pressed her lips, and lifted her index finger. I think that thing actually possesses the qualities of life. Well, yes. But, she said, raising her finger once again, I would categorize those things as some kind of system, and I still think it's plasma. He nodded. That is an apt description. Professor Jenkins, have you considered the possibility that object is a form of plasma? Jenkins took off his glasses and rubbed his eyes. Yes, Miss Appel, that's why I'm trying to be as careful as possible and exclude the possibility of jarring it loose. She stepped forward. 
There is a larger issue of danger. No question about it. The insulator floated a few centimeters from the bottom, and then it gradually rotated and revolved silently like a planet. The appels were mesmerized, but Andy was thinking about the extent of the monkey penetration through time. I don't know what makes this object glow, said Jenkins near the barn opening. Are you sure there's no radiation? called Lucy. He turned. I am. I have dealt specifically with radioactive piles, Miss Appel. What I find fascinating here is its motion around the jar. It's as if it possesses some type of intelligence. Andy spoke clearly. Just what exactly are you going to do with it? Mr. Reese, if you please. Well, damn this, he yelled and he retreated back to the jar. What you're doing is very risky. Pipe down, Reese, shouted Alton, blocking his way. No, you pipe down. Come on, Alton, said John. Everyone is upset here. Alton glared at Andy. Better we all be dead than that insulator be open, said Andy. Everyone could be in danger. Well, I agree with you, Mr. Reese, all of you said Jenkins, looking at everyone in the barnyard. All of you must report any irregularities to your doctor here in town. And what will a doctor be able to do? asked Sandy. Alton pointed his finger. You are pushing your luck, Reese. Again, Jenkins wiped the sweat beads off his forehead. One more thing. Do not, and I repeat, do not tell anyone what you have seen. We don't want another Orson Welles here. The Mercury Theater of the Air, Lucy added, but her face had lost that relaxed enthusiasm from the graduation. Exactly. People will panic, I told you. I've never seen anything like this in my life. The precision and the unjustified motion. Mr. Reese has every right to be concerned. Well, I think he's got a big mouth, said Alton. This is an unusual circumstance, Alton, said John. We'll keep this whole thing hushed. Just get that thing off my property. Yes, sir, I will do that right now, said Jenkins. Right now. Andy again fixed his eyes on the sphere. The monkeys needed to be destroyed. Without the proper environment, they couldn't last very long. Jenkins angled the rake to catch the mason jar's handle. He slowly lifted the jar off the crate and deftly positioned it over an open, scuffed gray metal cylinder on the straw floor. The proliferating orange glow formed within the cylinder's dark walls and projected to the upper haylofts. Jenkins clamped the cylinder shut with the wooden pole and the humming was almost imperceptible. This canister is insulated with lead. Well, if it isn't radioactivity, what is it? asked John. No one answered his question. Jenkins waddled, carefully balancing the canister toward the truck. Well, you need to destroy it. I'll repeat it again. You need to destroy it, said Andy as Jenkins passed. Alton now faced Andy. You talk like you know what it is. Now, how the hell would he know that? asked John. Jenkins placed the canister inside a long blue painted bin inside the open doors. Once secure, Jenkins locked the lid. After pausing, he removed his hat and dabbed his forehead once again. Alton closed the rear doors and turned the lever. Then he pushed the key in the lock and locked the lever. The police radio in the truck now hummed to its static. Can I still contact you people through that barbershop? 
Sure, Dom will get the word out to us, said John, or the other number I gave you at Gabby Higgins's house. Good, good. I have to tell you, we're leaving for the New York World's Fair in three days, Mr. Jenkins. Oh, the fair. I would like to go there myself. I've heard it's quite extraordinary. Lucy raised her index finger and grabbed her notebook off the gate. She quickly jotted something on the page and ripped it from the book. This is my Aunt Charlotte's address and phone number in New Jersey. It's a party line, but you can get through. Oh, very good. We'll inform you of our progress. And again, mum's the word. Mum's the word until we nail this down. Good luck in that, Mr. Jenkins, said John. Alton banged the radio inside the truck. Jenkins smiled and nodded, but thought before he spoke. There is a chance we may not understand this at all. Then he leaned from the window. What in God's name is that noise on the radio? Well, I'm shutting it off, replied Alton. Jenkins opened the driver's door and got inside. When he slammed the door, he turned to Andy and the Appels. I will bring this specimen directly to Chicago. After a short silence, John spoke again. Well, at least we don't have to deal with it. Everyone laughed. Alton started the truck, tipped his hat, and shifted forward. The dust stirred as he swung under the farmhouse trees. John stepped forward and placed his hands on his hips as the truck moved along the road. Just make sure nobody tells Porky any of this when he gets back. If he gets wind of this, he'll blab it everywhere. I sent him to Des Moines for supplies on purpose. You mean on porpoise, said Lucy, folding up her notebook. Remember when you trusted him with the truck, Dad? He pulled out with all that equipment in the truck bed and forgot to close the gate. She laughed hard enough to steady herself on her knees. All the equipment fell out piece by piece and scattered down Main Street. Dom saw the whole thing. John pinched the bridge of his nose. Yes, Dom saw it, and everybody else in town. Porky now knows he has to close the truck gate. Some of that equipment was pretty bent up, added Ned. Ruined, ruined, said Lucy. Enough talk about Porky, said John. Point being, he can't keep his big mouth shut. You might as well have Red Barber broadcast it. He wiped his brow with his jersey sleeve. And Andy, I want to talk to you. He led Andy to the porch, now shaded in the afternoon sun. Something wrong, John? John leaned against the porch balustrade. Well, yes, I'm still worried about the trespassers on my property. They haven't been around for a week. Maybe they're finally gone. John stroked his chin and squinted his blue eyes. I just have a damn bad feeling. Maybe it's that thing down in Harper's Creek. I can't put it all together. I just want you to please watch Lucy. Lucy is so, so precocious, said Andy. That's it. She's liable to go right up and start talking to strangers. I understand. You've got fighting abilities. I know that. You're my daughter's bodyguard, and don't forget it. Sunday, we're going over Gabby's house. Mavis and I play cards every Sunday night with Clara and Gabby. Lucy is supposed to meet Brucey Benson and go to the movies. Well, I'm reluctant to be spying on Lucy's social life. John placed his hand alongside of his mouth as if he were telling a secret. I wouldn't object if you want to give Brucey the same treatment you gave those guys at the school. Don't you like him? Brucey is a braggart and a hypocrite, but not a bad guy. John's deep laugh bellowed around the yard. Oh, 
oh, oh, not a bad guy. That's funny. He smiled and shook his head and put his arm around Andy as he walked him back toward the barn. The big broadcast of 1938 is playing at the Majestic. Is that a good movie? Any movie Bob Hope is in is a good movie. That actor Wayne is from Iowa. I like Cagney, too. I can still remember when we used to watch the movies at the Majestic and Helen McCain used to play the piano to Charlie Chaplin, Clara Bow. It was a big time when sound came in. Heck, they haven't even brought electric power to parts of the county. But Franklin Roosevelt is going to do it. You like FDR. Franklin Roosevelt saved this country. Now, I was a solid Republican. Herbert Hoover was from Iowa. Right, but I'll always vote Democrat now. Roosevelt saved my farm. We were dry, real dry, not like the Dust Bowl, but dry, and we needed money. Things were bad, Andy. Franklin Roosevelt got us loans. Henry Wallace fought for us, too. Andy tilted his head. Wallace is the Secretary of Agriculture. Now, he's from... Sounds like the whole world is from Iowa, said Andy, grinning. Well, if it isn't, it should be. Andy's smile dropped. Jenkins and Alton were long since gone off the property. But he knew he should have cracked that insulator while it was still in the stream. I have seen the future. Chapter 15. Mrs. Appel's light-scented perfume occasionally drifted by Andy as he drove the truck. The manually operated vehicle intimidated him especially when he stalled the truck at the edge of the property. His capsule operated so easily. Then he grinded the gears, finally reaching third gear, but he kept driving. The truck's huge steering wheel seemed weighted down. He thought back to the one time he attempted to drive a standard shift along the California coast. Well, I'm not used to driving a truck, he chuckled. Well, we can't blame it on an added load because Porky's not in the truck, said John, grinning. Mrs. Appel elbowed his ribs. John Appel, don't you stop making light of Porky again. Well, Porky was never light, replied John, laughing. Mrs. Appel hid a subtle smile as she peered out the open window. The Ford rumbled down a slope toward a metal frame bridge over Harper's Creek. Maybe the men stalking Lucy had retreated over this very bridge. A rail bed spanned above the riverbank and linked to the junction that looped toward the buildings. Andy followed the wires between the poles. Five poles down bathed in the afternoon sun. All six insulators had been removed from the crossbeams atop the pole. The truck proceeded under the silver steel bridge girders and then up the hill toward Hancock. In the mirror, Lucy had raised her hand to her eyes as she scanned the rail yard. The glowing orange sphere in the river really existed. And what would the monkeys do next? In the mirror, Lucy balanced her chin on her hands at the window as she now watched the countryside pass by. The enclave had not mentioned about her having a direct influence on history, but Geiger's impact seemed unmistakable. The town's buildings rose like goosebumps atop the hill. Sunlight swept across the flattened land and the undulating green hills to the south. The tinted sun rays caught Lucy's rounded face and her dark hair flipped in the breeze. Andy not only found her intellect and her disposition remarkable, but he just plain liked her. He shifted into second gear as the truck rocked over the exposed steel tracks. Now you've got it, said John. All right, said Andy, raising his right hand as he shifted into third. 
From behind, Lucy turned, flashed her teeth, and broke into applause. Well, I guess I passed the driving test. Well, as long as my tools and machinery aren't falling out of the back of the truck, it's good enough for me, said John. Just keep going straight past Dom's. You'll see the Majestic on the left. But slow down before you get pinched by Hobart. Hobart has been known to race that police car of his, said Mrs. Appel. John tightened his face as if he had just chewed on a lemon. Andy took his foot off the accelerator as they neared town. In the future, towns such as Hancock were diluted and spread into suburban sprawl or existed only in rural areas. Those downtowns would eventually fade away too, becoming towering silos. The overhead hanging lamps inside Dom's shop highlighted the black and white floor tiles. Beep the horn, Andy, said John. Andy pushed down the center of the steering wheel on the shiny blue Ford logo. He produced several blaring blasts. John shouted out the window. Hey, Dom! Dom waved toward the street as the truck passed, but continued to snip his scissors through an older man's white hair. A wide sidewalk past the two-story brick building housing the Majestic Theater. Bulky glass door ascended below the marquee's overhang, open to the lobby. Bright bulbs surrounding the marquee cast a glow across the sidewalk and street. Across the marquee's white facade were uneven red letters. The big broadcast of 1938. W.C. Fields, Bob Hope, Martha Ray, Dorothy Lamore. Andy shifted and the truck whined to an abrupt stop along the granite curb. A thin, brown-haired kid with a drooping jar emerged from the lobby's glass doors. He wore a red bow tie, a white shirt, and beige slacks, and he started to chat with the talking blonde inside the illuminated ticket window. John leaned across his wife. Well, there he is. Brucey? King, Brucey, said John. Well, there's Lorna and Mel. Brucey quickly extended his elbow to another thin blonde. John stuck his head out the window. What's he doing now? Lucy needs to drop him like a hot potato. Lucy crawled off the truck bed and called. Brucey swung away from the girl on his elbow and strolled toward Lucy. John's facial muscles flexed as he ground his teeth. Lucy called out his name again as she flitted across the sidewalk under the marquee. Brucey had a long face with a hoarse smile and flashy eyes. He escorted Lucy back to the car. Andy sensed the kid's exaggerated sense of self-importance as he approached the truck. Even his voice was snooty. Mr. and Mrs. Appel, how are you? Well, we're fine, Brucey, said Mrs. Appel. Brucey stood obliquely to John. Good, good. I just wanted to let you know that my final arrangements to Sacramento College are complete. I shall be leaving in August. Well, that's just wonderful, Brucey, said John, winking at Andy. I guess that comes with being a real estate agent's son. Then he whispered in a low voice to Andy, Can't come too soon. What was that, sir? asked Brucey. I said I think college is very important, said John. Andy wondered why Lucy, so brilliant, would never attend college while this ne'er-do-well sailed off to Sacramento. Lucy had moved onto the sidewalk and talked with a petite girl in a white dress as Brucey's ingratiation continued. Andy peered down the sidewalk at the town's lights, dimmed to darkness. His thoughts centered on Jenkins in the sphere as well as the missing insulators. He cringed as he thought of the professor taking the sphere in the truck. 
Although Jenkins would study it, he would never understand its complexity or its potential. Tomorrow, he needed to place a phone call directly to Jenkins. John pressed his lips. Look, Brucie, uh, we'll be back or send Andy here to pick up Lucy at 9.45 when the movie ends. Well, I have my father's new Plymouth. It's a gem. A gem, said John. Sir? Quarter to ten. I said, we'll be back here quarter to ten. Right, Andy? Right, John. Brucie, still leaning on the window frame, glared at Andy. Oh, you're the chap who accosted those two government guys. My father says you're lucky the FBI doesn't come after you. Attacking government personnel could create a real legal problem for you. Well, I wouldn't be too concerned about it, Brucey, said Andy as he pushed open the door. Brucey hopscotched back to the sidewalk. I have to get inside to uh, watch the previews and the cartoons. You all have a great evening. Yes, take care, Brucey, said Mrs. Appel. Brucey veered toward the theater just as if he had robbed a bank. John rolled his eyes and leaned over his wife again. He's a phony baloney. Andy nodded as the sound of a man hawking newspapers at the corner echoed down the street. He studied the front page and then got back to the car. What is it, Andy? asked Mrs. Appel. Just looking at the newspaper, lots of headlines. One thing about going to the movies is you get to see Disney cartoons or Universal News and movie tones, said John. Yes, I'm aware of the newsreels. Right up there in black and white, we saw the Hindenburg in flames. What a god-awful tragedy. The humanity, they said, said Mrs. Appel, leaning over. Confidentially, I like the movies better. They're making Margaret Mitchell's book into a movie, you know. John rolled his eyes. Do tell. John kind of liked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, we all like that picture. I don't think Margaret Mitchell's book comes out till later this year. Well, I'm sure we'll all go see it. Andy grinned as across the street, Lucy paid one of the street vendors for our magazine. She held up an ad depicting a hand grasped around a moist, tilted Coke bottle. Under the red circle with the Coca-Cola white-lettered logo was a rendering of the Trilon and the Perisphere at the fair. Look at this, everyone, the New York World's Fair. Drink Coca-Cola, delicious and refreshing, replied Andy. I'll have to try some. No, silly, under the New York World's Fair. The New York World's Fair of 1939 invites you to the world of tomorrow. Isn't that exciting? Oh, Lucy, you can't keep spending your money on those magazines, said Mrs. Appel. We'll be at the fair soon enough, Lucy, said John, gazing over Andy's shoulder. Enjoy the movie. She turned to Andy, leaning against the truck bed slats. She had a slight mournfulness in her eyes. Did you see that pole? You mean the missing insulators? She nodded. Yes, I saw it. Somebody removed them. I believe you're right. One of the girls called from the theater and she turned. I'll see you after the show, Andy. Sure thing. She squeezed his hand and backtracked into the theater. Inside the lobby, her friends pawed over the magazine. Andy opened the door and got inside and started the truck. You're going to shift, son? Asked John with a cutesy grin. Andy easily shifted into first gear this time. There, that wasn't so bad. Now, where am I going? Just beyond the filling station, said John. I hope. Andy cruised along the storefronts. 
The quiescence of 1939 dissipated in his thoughts to the futuristic world of the monkeys. He was surprised to see men dressed in spiffy uniforms and working the gas pumps. One guy in a blue-striped uniform lifted a long blue car's dipstick from under the propped hood as another man scrubbed the windshield. Nothing is automated. Well, no service, you don't stay in business, said John. Take a right. Andy downshifted and rolled past a busy little cafe at the corner. Third house on the left, the yellow one with the porch light on. I see it, he said, thinking he would use part of John's stipend to buy one of those newspapers. He pulled across the quiet tree-lined street and stopped at the curb. We're going to listen to the radio, said Mrs. Appel. Tell Andy what's on tonight, John. I have to run a farm. I don't keep track of those radio listings in the movie magazines you and your daughter read, Mavis, answered John. He paused before he spoke. The only thing I know is Jack Benny is finishing up his season tonight. He doesn't keep track of the magazines, said Mrs. Appel, elbowing Andy. And Fibber McGee is off right now, and even Fred Allen's going off for the summer. Well, they can't be on the air all the time, John. John raised his finger in the air. But Sergeant Preston is still on this summer, according to Dom. He has a farm to run, said Mrs. Appel. Doesn't keep track of the listings. You watch that theater, Andy. Remember, those two guys stalked Lucy last time she was in town. Yes, sir, said Andy as John opened the door and helped his wife from the truck. Can't be too careful, right, Andy? Right, John. I don't care if John Dillinger is reincarnated with the lady in red. You protect Lucy. I've seen you in action. You're the guy who can do it. Then he leaned forward to Andy and whispered, And if Brucey starts up, you let him have it, too. Right. Right, Andy? asked Mrs. Appel with a wide grin as she poked her finger into her husband's arm. Andy tilted his head back and laughed. Well, Brucey has a rather large ego. Well, that's the understatement of the year, said John. Mrs. Appel pointed to a small black and white checkered purse on the seat. Oh dear, Lucy forgot her purse. You better run back with it, Andy. Sure, tension remained in John's eyes. John, I do intend to watch out for Lucy. I know you will, son, I know you will. Mrs. Appel mumbled something to John and took his arm as they strolled up the front walk. A pug-nosed man in a white shirt and white green paisley tie and a brunette in a pink dress appeared at the door. They all waved at Andy. He waved back and checked the rearview mirror before pulling out. At the corner, he braked and pulled to a slow stop across from the theater. On the back of Lucy's small cloth purse, a quote, handwritten in yellow-lined paper and attributed to Professor Geiger, was attached with a safety pin. When you think, you understand. As the newspaper hawker rattled off the evening headlines for the passerby, Andy crossed Main Street and walked up to the blonde at the ticket booth. She had glossy red lipstick and a slight space between her two front teeth when she smiled. Excuse me, I have Lucy Appel's purse. You stole it? No, I didn't steal it. I'm bringing it from her mother. How do I know you didn't steal it? Look, miss, my name is Penelope. What's yours, handsome? May I bring this to Lucy? She fixed her smile. Sorry, you can't get in without a ticket. Andy slowly raised his brow. Where's the manager? Night off, she said as she took out a nail file. Then she turned away and began filing her nails. Perhaps I could have Brucey Benson come out for it. Her head snapped to the right and she brushed her hand through the air. Oh, then uh, bring in the purse. 
Thanks. Tell Brucey that Penelope wants to talk to him. Sure. Andy shook his head as he marched inside. With roasted popcorn in the air, he stopped at the glass-enclosed movie poster in the lobby. In front of an antiquated silver-slotted microphone, Bob Hope, a smiling actor with a funny nose, pranced about in a dark pinstripe suit with a white flower in his lapel. He hovered over an odd-looking man named W.C. Fields and a woman called Martha Ray. Fields' mouth slid sideways as if he had just cracked a poignantly rude remark. Andy had seen these people on occasion in cloud files. Now they were alive in this time period. He jaunted across the thick-piled rug under a branching gold chandelier and approached a long counter where people purchased buttery popcorn exploding around a glass-enclosed machine. Candy boxes were lined up in the glass cases at the drink counter. An usher in a satin blue uniform with yellow trim and a little box hat flirted with a red-headed woman at the bottom of a sweeping, regal-carpeted staircase. He turned when Andy appeared. Sir, asked the usher, raising his dark brows. Lucy Appel, is she downstairs here? No, sir, they all went upstairs. I have her purse, said Andy, holding up the checkered purse. She forgot it. The kid reached for the purse. I'll take it to her. No, no, you won't. Mr. Appel has given me specific orders to deliver the purse myself. Mr. Appel said that? He did. Very well. He took out a green, metal, and chrome flashlight and clicked the button a few times, producing a dull beam. He smiled at the redhead. Andy held the coal brass banister and scampered behind the usher along the stairs' ornate gold-flowered wallpaper. As if he were in a military parade, he was motioned to the left, to a series of white wood doors. Once inside, the usher clicked his flashlight button, and they navigated in the darkened aisle. On the screen, the announcer's rhythmic cadence described the silver-toned newsreel. Columns of Nazi troops marched in some kind of odd Prussian step through the crowd-lined streets. Sporadic boos and hisses erupted in the lower theater when the hypnotic-eyed Hitler clad in a dark sheen leather coat and swastika, stood in a moving open car. His arm was extended upward at a 45-degree angle. The terror eked into the theater like a beckoning silence before a V-2 missile Andy had watched in the cloud files. Once again, he grew uneasy as he became cognizant of the possible ramifications of extending Geiger's life. The usher tugged on his shirt and pointed to Lucy, waving in the side seat next to her friends. The audience suddenly applauded, and Andy folded his arms and slowly turned back to the screen. Sir, said the usher, you don't have a ticket. Wait, said Andy, as the white letters appeared on the black screen. President opens New York World's Fair. The avenues were crammed. A mass of people marched, flags rippled, and prodigious water fountains spouted in the background. The camera switched to FDR behind a deep gray podium stamped with a white perisphere and pointed trilon. The president held his hat over his heart, and then the clip switched to his speech and his voice filled the theater. All who come to this World's Fair in New York will find the heartiest of welcomes. They will find that the eyes of the United States are fixed on the future. Yes, our wagon is hitched to a star, but it is the star of friendship. The black and white image of men in hats and a few ladies waving handkerchiefs 
flashed on the screen as the president continued. But it is a star of progress for mankind, a star of greater happiness and less hardship, a star of international goodwill. Above it all, it is a star of peace. I hereby dedicate this World Fair, the New York World Fair of 1939, and declare it open to all mankind. Sir, please. Andy placed the purse in Lucy's hands and her eyes lit up. He shrugged his shoulders as she eyed him all the way back to the doors. Once on the second floor, Andy faced the usher as he closed the doors. I appreciate that. Well, I'm just glad Lucy got her purse. He creased his brow. Are you really the guy who cold-cocked the government agents? Well, I helped John Appel and his sons, yes. Would you show me that Chinese boxing? Well, it's rather difficult. He shook the young man's hand. Then he strode past the concession and pushed open the outside doors. Penelope blinked her eyelashes from the ticket booth and blurted out something about Brucie. Andy backtracked down the sidewalk as the newspaper kid hollered out another headline at the corner. Andy glanced over his shoulder at the bright theater marquee and approached the teenage boy. The kid leaned the paper toward him. Andy grasped the crisp newspaper in his hands. That'll be a nickel. Andy unfolded the crisp dollar bill John had given him and placed it in the kid's palm. Almost instantly, 95 cents in coin fell into his hand. Then he retreated across the street near the parked truck and sat on the bench under the glow of a streetlight single incandescent bulb. He skimmed the local headlines, but a story on page three about Nazi Germany brought back images of Hitler in the theater. Berlin and Soviets meet. Moscow. During June, the German government and the Soviet Union have engaged in meetings concerning trade and economic issues according to sources within the German embassy. This was further confirmed from the Office of the Russian Commissar for Foreign Trade. Talks may lead to a mutual pact. However, it was learned today that Chancellor Hitler in Berchtesgaden has halted continuance of further talks with Moscow. A source within the German government still maintains that, the, that Russian normalization of relations with Germany is possible. Andy set the paper on his lap. Hitler had begun his conquest of Europe, and the old country of Poland, according to his plug's file, would fall in September. He stared at the bulb surrounding the Majestic's marquee and wondered if he really should let Geiger live. Geiger's survival from the attack at the fair might allow Hitler hoarding human beings into death camps at this very moment to perpetuate his reign of death and destruction. He tightened his hands around the page's serrated edges and closed his eyes. No one in 1939 could advise him or show him history's change, and he did not have all the facts. It all came down to trusting a group of humans on a faraway Jovian moon in the future. He quickly flipped to the pages of the sports section. Names such as Joe DiMaggio and the career of Rogers Hornsby highlighted the baseball section. He skimmed an article about the boxer Joe Lewis knocking out some guy named Tony Galento in the fourth round last month. Then he turned the pages to the block ink headlines. As he tapped his finger against his lips, he in no way felt competent to judge history's course. Cars occasionally broke the Main Street stillness. 
He concentrated on the hypnotic spin of a passing car's white wall tires, and he prayed that he would make the right choice about Geiger. Andy tucked the paper under his arm and wandered down the sidewalk. He jogged across the sleepy town's main street and glanced at another movie poster of Bob Hope and W.C. Fields. The clock inside the lobby indicated he still had 15 minutes before the film ended. As he thought about Jenkins again, he wondered if the police radio buzzing inside the green truck might be related to the static on Dom's radio and the high school gymnasium radio. Andy stepped laterally toward Dom's barbershop. The inside lights cast a tapering brightness onto the sidewalk. He accelerated his pace toward a motionless red, white, and blue barber pole. Inside, Dom swept the floor near the chairs. Andy rapped on the glass, and the dark-haired Dom waved Andy inside. So, how's John's new worker working out? Andy straddled the doorway. Then he checked down the sidewalk to the theater. Dom combed back his black hair on the sides and parted it almost in the middle. Andy spoke over a jazzy tune on the small Bakelite radio. Well, other than the hog stench, well, farm work is tough. Yeah, especially when you're working around Porky. Andy grinned, and his eyes followed the various green and white hair tonic bottles on the marble counter. Then he turned to Dom. Anybody else new here in town? Are you going to start a club of new arrivals? Oh, you know, there's been people out at John's property. Dom swept the hair clippings off the black and white tiles into a large copper dustpan. Well, John doesn't know exactly who's been out there, does he? Right. Did you see anybody in town? Nope. Are you sure? asked Andy, looking at the radio. You're a long way in the middle of Iowa, kid. If someone came new into town, I'd know about it. Just like when you got here. Andy grimaced as he stared at the radio. What's the matter? Don't you like Benny Goodman? He's from Iowa. You sound like John. Radio gets good reception. That's coming all the way from Chicago. Andy now linked the intruders to the buzz of the high school gymnasium radio and the troopers' police radio in the green truck. What about that static on the radio, Dom? Huh? Andy focused at the Majestic and then turned back to Dom. I heard there was a guy who came in and the radio filled with static. Dom fell back in the chair and exhaled. Oh, what a long day. You mean Dwayne Pilts, making it sound kablooey. Yes. The barber shrugged his shoulders. I don't know what that was all about. I've cut Dwayne's hair since he was a little kid. Andy nodded and again panned the sidewalk. What's outside, you girl watching? I am. Lucy Appel. John wants me to keep an eye on her because, because of the guys on his property. I get it, I get it. Hobart is not happy about John hiring you. You want a trim while you're waiting? Oh, I'm sorry. I have to go back in the theater. Well, you need a trim, and you could use some bro cream. Give your hair that fresh comb look. Andy smiled when he saw the jars and tubes of the white cream stocked under the counter. Is that what you use, Dom? No, I use Wild Root. Well, it looks good. You can never look too good, Andy, he said, slapping him on the shoulder. As for Dwayne Peltz, he works for the railroad. I noticed a bad hum on the radio during the game. I kept banging the radio, and static was there until he left. Are you telling me the static was gone when Peltz left? Yes, sir. Like I say, he works in the rail yard. I'll ask him if it has anything to do with the railroad, because that might cause the radio to hum. 
Could have just been a problem with the electrical line. We have that all the time. Why all this talk about the radio? Well, nothing important. Andy stepped toward the theater. I'm sure it was something in the line. Right, right. Thanks, Dom. He started down the sidewalk again. Remember that trim? I will. Andy grew restless as he trudged along the storefronts. As he peered into the store windows, his thoughts intermixed with the Enclave's dire predictions around the table on Ganymede and the luminescent insulator once lodged on the stream bottom. As he neared the ticket window, Penelope looked up from a movie magazine. You again? The movie's almost over. I know. Harry said you're the new guy who works at the Appel Farm. She raised her plucked eyebrows and closed the magazine. Lucy would have been smart to take you to the movie and not Brucey Benson. Dwayne Pilts come to the movies tonight? She opened a small bottle and touched up her nails with glossy red polish. The polish had a sharp odor. Mr. Pilts works for the railroad. No, Mr. Pilts didn't come into the movies tonight. He was here last weekend with his mother. Where does he live? One of the railroad houses out at the station. Thanks. Say, you want to walk me home? Not particularly. She produced a dumb grin and flooded her long, dark lashes. Everybody wants to walk me home. Well, then you won't be lonely, will you? He left her staring and her mouth hung open. A truck whooshed down Main Street. Maybe the monkeys had merged into Dwayne Pilts's body, combating a post-biological species that utilized intelligent energy and consciousness required help. Perhaps the monkeys knew only sketchy details about his purpose in 1939. He took in the fresh air as he scanned the stars. They could be anywhere. I have seen the future. Chapter 16. Andy tarried in front of a small appliance store window, smattered with handwritten sale banners. He heard Lucy's voice as the patrons trickled onto the sidewalk. Lucy smiled as she passed the ticket window. Andy, over here! Andy glided across Main Street. How was the movie? It was real funny and good, but guess what I saw? What did you see? He turned back toward the theater marquee. Where's Brucie? Oh, he stayed behind with his buddies. Never mind him. She stopped in the middle of Main Street. Listen, they're making a movie about... About? The Wizard of Oz. It's due out in August, I think, and it's in color. I'm sure they said it would be in color. Mom used to read that book to us when we were kids. Harley was scared by the witch. Wizard of Oz? I'd like to see an old-time movie. Old-time movie? I mean, I'd like to see that movie. Well, it is in color. When we first saw Snow White in color, I couldn't believe it. Well, I'd like to go see The Wizard of Oz. Me too. Would you go along with us? She asked. But maybe you'll be long gone by then. No, I can go. You promise? Lucy, I promise. I will go to The Wizard of Oz with you, he said, raising his hand. She squinted her eyes. I swear to the heavens above I'll be there. I swear to the heavens above I will be there. Andy opened the passenger door and helped Lucy inside. Thank you, Mr. Reese. He took the keys from his pocket and walked around to the driver's side. She had a wide grin. I've never had a guy open a door like that. My pleasure. You're only three years older than me, but you seem older. Andy started the truck. 
Well, I just wanted to open the door for you. Well, I liked it. Andy forgot to put his foot on the clutch, and the truck shot back a few feet. Whoa, cowboy! exclaimed Lucy. Andy shook his head, and they both laughed. I'm used to a car driving itself. Well, that's funny. Driving itself? Andy started the truck properly this time. Lucy, do you know Dwayne Pilt? Mr. Pilt, yes, he works on the railroad. Why? Well, I have reason to think he might be involved with those men who are watching you. Well, I didn't see him watching me. Does this have anything to do with the missing insulators? I'm not sure. I'm going to speak to him. Andy, it's obvious that someone removed those insulators and one floated downstream and went under. Andy checked over his shoulders and pulled onto Main Street. I agree. Judy Garland is playing Dorothy. Oh, she was a singer, right? Well, she still is a singer. I liked her in Love Finds Andy Hardy. She was Betsy Booth. I'm not familiar with that movie. Yes, I guess you'd be a little old for that. He shifted toward the corner. See, she got Andy to take her to the Christmas dance. Then she wins his heart when she sings, In Between, It Never Rains But What It Pours. And she also sang, Meet the Beat of My Heart. I think Mickey Rooney fell in love with her in real life. See, I told you she was a good singer. You said was. She squinted and then held his wrist. You talk about everything as if you already know about it. You mean like man going to the moon? Oh, touche. But man will go to the moon. I can feel it. Rockets will get bigger and be able to escape the bounds of Earth. I read about it in the library. As a matter of fact, I'm going to find information on plasma at the library tomorrow. Andy checked the mirror back toward the theater lights. He needed some way to track the monkeys. Lucy, where can I get a portable radio? Just have the truck drive you to the store. Andy creased his brow and pointed at her. You think as fast as you talk. Are you saying I have a big mouth, Mr. Reese? I am definitely saying that you have a big mouth, Miss Appel, he said, and they both broke into laughter. Watch it. Her smile slowly fell away. Why do you need a portable radio? Andy shrugged his shoulders and drove with one hand on the wheel. See, there you go again. What? he asked as he downshifted toward the Higgins's house. I'm not sure. Her distant look was disquieting. She had the same look when she talked about Geiger. I know you're from New York, but it's like you have knowledge of something else, and I don't know what that something is. The brakes squealed and he stopped the truck. I'm the mystery man. Very. She shut off the engine and they got out, and he rounded the hood. And you'll get to the root of that mystery, won't you, Miss Appel? I will, Mr. Reese, she said, touching his chin with her finger. Well, I guess I'll be better prepared. She stepped backward and up the walk ahead of him. Doesn't matter whether you're prepared or not. She opened her mouth and smiled. You are... Yes, he asked as he leaned toward her. You are a... a... She grabbed both his hands at the front steps. The porch light cast a thin brightness across the walk and front lawn. You know what you are. She turned and raced onto the porch. He felt a closeness to her that was growing stronger. Electricity. We'll have it at the house soon. It's sort of like Social Security. Social Security? Lucy stroked her chin and squinted as she assumed her thinking expression. Well, I think old folks 
need some help. I just can't help thinking that once you have the money, you expect it, and then you need it, and then you want more benefits. Well, that's exactly what happened before it crashed. Before it crashed? Oh, really, Mr. Big Brains, how do you know that? Well, I mean, you're right about wanting more benefits. Her eyes swept across the sky. Not my thoughts. Professor Geiger's. He says that's the first step to socialism. Hitler wanted that before he took power. Dad, of course, and even Mom thinks that FDR and the supplement for their retirement is just peachy. Geiger is for a voluntary system of retirement. Just where is Geiger right now? Well, I assume he's at his college job in New York. She continued her skywatch. You know, I'm amazed how you spouted off the names of those stars in the distance of Vega. Very impressive. Well, that's what I do. The front door opened and Mrs. Appel stuck out her head. How was the movie, Lucy? Well, it was great, Mom. You were right. Betsy Booth. I mean, Judy Garland is the one that will play Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Andy has sworn to the heavens that he will bring me to see that movie. Well, that's nice. She turned toward Andy. Everything else all right, Andy? All clear. You want us to come in? No, enjoy the summer night. John and I will be out in about ten minutes. We want to hear the end of Jack Benny. Andy shrugged his shoulders as the door closed. They wandered back to the front steps. Lucy sat down and placed her elbows on her elevated knees. You have secrets. Well, we all have secrets. He moved next to her and leaned back on the porch. She glanced over her shoulder and smiled. You need to read more of Professor Geiger's books. I'll see if I can get some when we meet him at the fair. I'm sure his books are very popular. Professor Geiger isn't very popular anywhere. Hitler was about to arrest him when he left Germany. I know. How do you know? From the newspapers. Oh. Either way, Hitler is very, very dangerous. Movie Tone showed how Czechoslovakia was dissolved in March. What's next? Poland? You may be right. Andy was still nervous about tampering with history. Hitler wants it all. Well, Geiger doesn't think so, she said. In a magazine article I read at the library, Geiger claims Hitler would leave us alone. I think he's right. How come you're not going to college, Lucy? Maybe I can get a job in Des Moines, save some money, and find a college back east. I'm going to ask people at the fair to suggest a college and maybe get a recommendation. My grades are very good. I bet they are. She peered over the trees. Lucy, I'd like to call Geiger directly. She pointed skyward. What's that rounded area beyond the swan? Andy tilted back and focused on the sharp star points rounded in the dark sky. Corona Borealis, the crown. King Minos of Crete had a daughter named Ariadne. She was married to Theseus at her birthplace on the island of Knossos. But then he deserted her, and later she married again to Liber Bacchus. She took his name, but the crown given to her by Theseus was transferred into the sky, and that's what we see today. She stared at Corona Borealis, but she slowly smiled as she looked into his eyes. Can't believe you know all that. Well, I could be lying. She held his hand. Her hand was smooth and warm. Now, would you lie to me? Maybe someday they'll name a constellation after you. Her eyes were glassy and dark, but she continued to hold his hand. And what would that be? Oh, a new group of stars called the Queen of the West. She ascends to her throne only after a long struggle. But the sky has changed because she is in the sky. I think Shakespeare said it better than I. And what did he say, Mr. Reese? 
I remember this one. It's in Romeo and Juliet. Well, go ahead. Come, gentle knight. Come, loving black-browed knight. Give me my Romeo, and when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. He will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. A tear moved almost imperceptibly down Lucy's cheek. Andy wiped it away with his finger and then kissed her forehead. She threw her arms around him. Her body was tight, but her touch was gentle. That is so beautiful, Andy. Well, it's the truth. She produced a light lip smile. Thank you. Someone jostled at the front door and Andy leaned back again. Mrs. Appel's laughter rolled onto the porch. He's so cheap. Who, Dad? asked Lucy as she stood. No, Jack Benny. He keeps all his money in this giant vault. Well, I heard him on another program. Well, maybe it was Fred Allen, said the shot man with the maroon bow tie. Jack Benny was held up by robbers. Well, what happened, Gabby? Gabby had a funny voice. Well, the robber sticks a gun into his ribs and says, Your money or your life. And Jack Benny pauses and he waits. The robber gets mad, gets mad, and he says, Well, Jack Benny says with his deadpan delivery, I'm thinking about it. Andy grinned, and Lucy produced a big smile as the adults roared. Even John's low-pitched laugh resonated across the porch. And that Maxwell, did you ever hear a car like that? asked John. Never, said Gabby, wiping his eye. Well, we could have called the Lone Ranger, said Clara. Gabby, do the Lone Ranger. As a couple of moths started about the porch light, the bushy-browed Gabby bent his knees slightly and cupped his hand over his ear. His voice was deeper now, and he enunciated every word. In the early days of the western United States, a masked man and an Indian rode the plain, searching for truth and justice. John shook his head, and Mrs. Appel laughed and held on to Clara. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear, when out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great hoss Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Kimosabi, said Lucy. Come on, Mr. Appel, said Mrs. Appel. We'll be here all night. Andy and Lucy started down the walk ahead of the Appels. Mrs. Appel's shoes clattered against the walk. So the movie was good. Well, I enjoyed it. What is a Kimosabi? asked Andy. Tonto calls the Lone Ranger Kimosabi. She stopped. Everybody knows that, Andy. John's serious countenance contrasted his laughing on the porch. Anything on your end, Andy? Nothing directly. John thought as he stroked his mustache. Why don't you ride in back with Lucy and we'll talk when we get home? It will probably be a smoother ride if you drive, Dad, said Lucy. Andy raised his brows. I'll overlook that last remark, Kimosubi. I Have Seen the Future, Chapter 17. The brilliant star dome arched over the silver-hued Iowa landscape. Andy leaned against the cab's metal frame and stretched his legs across the truck bed. A reassuring train whistle resonated somewhere in the night as his voice vibrated with the road bumps. Beautiful night, Lucy. You mean Kimosabi. 
She threw a clump of hay at him. You missed. She edged closer to the cab. How old are you? I'm 21. I'm 22. Hmm. She gazed skyward. I say Martians could be up there. What do you say, Mr. Reese? Andy pointed to Mars's present position. Not necessarily on Mars, maybe in other places. Where were you when they broadcast War of the Worlds? Who, me? Lucy gestured around the truck bed. I don't see anybody else back here. Well, I didn't hear it. Well, congratulations, Andy Reese. You're one of the few people in the whole USA who didn't hear it. I bet you were at your observatory. Where's your telescope, anyway? Tommy's receptor tower and cloud data was not something he could easily describe. He quickly thought of older observatories. Well, Mount Wilson. Where's that? Southern California. Oh, so you're from New York, but you work in Southern California. Sometimes. She grinned. You ever see any movie stars out there? They don't hang around the mountain at night, Lucy. Her smile and subtle laughter was etched in his thoughts. I like you, Andy. Well, I like you, too. The truck turned and rocked over the railroad tracks. Car headlights skimmed the cornfield behind the truck. The lights dipped at the tracks and bobbed up. What kind of a car does Dwayne Pilts drive? Gee, Dad would know that. You really think he's involved with the trespassers? I'm not sure. What did he do to make you think he was involved with trespassing? Well, he worked at the rail yards where the insulators were taken, and he did something to Dom's radio. Static. She locked her elbow around his. Thank you for protecting me. Life is so short, Andy. I want to do something with my life, something important. I can't tell you what, but I feel as though life is tugging at me like an invisible rope, pulling me towards something meaningful. I felt it all my life. Maybe those feelings are exactly right. Like this thing with the fair, winning the contest. It's all a part of what I'm saying. You know, corresponding with an accomplished man such as Professor Geiger. Sometimes I think fate is just drawing me forward. Don't ever lose that feeling. I hope I won't. Andy shielded his eyes to the headlight glare through the dust. He rapped on the car window. John said something and pulled off the dirt road. The car was only a few hundred yards away when John shut off the engine and stepped outside. What's the matter? Is that car following us? Andy vaulted the truck bed. I think it is. John whispered in Andy's ear. I have a loaded shotgun under the seat. A black car with a split windshield, headlights exposed below in an elevated hood, and a flared chrome-radiated grill fishtailed toward them. That's Dwayne Piltz as Plymouth. Piltz? asked Andy. John's face contorted as if the pressure were building inside. What's Dwayne got to do with this? The horn blared but tapered away as the car zoomed by. The headlight beams formed a moving mass from side to side over the road, and the fishtailing taillights brightened red as the exhaust stayed in the night air. Is he out of his mind driving like that? Isn't that Dwayne Piltz? called Mrs. Appel from the front seat. Yes, Mavis, that was Dwayne Piltz. He's driving like a maniac in his Plymouth. John turned back to Andy as Lucy leaned over the truck bed. What's going on here? Andy studied the gray corn stalks lining the murky dirt road. Dom told me that Dwayne came inside the shop last week and he caused the radio to buzz and crackle. Buzz and crackle? John wiped his neck with his handkerchief. So what does that have to do with the price of beans? 
I think it's related to the people intruding on your property and stalking Lucy in town. Dwayne ever bother you, Lucy? asked John as he twisted around. No, I don't go over to the rail yards. John stuck his handkerchief into his back pocket. What about those government people? Would they give him some kind of device to buzz and crackle? Is that it? I don't know, said Andy. Piltz's car disappeared behind more corn. Let's get back to the farm, said John, in a tone usually reserved for a first lieutenant. Andy held John's arm as he faced the cab with his other hand pointed over the star-covered landscape. He just turned down there. I saw that. Where does that road lead anyways, asked Andy. To the creek, and then further to the rail yards. Something is wrong here, John. Well, that's your opinion, Andy. John wiped his mouth and cleared his throat. I'm a practical man. I don't speculate much unless I see something with my own eyes. I saw and I heard men on my property, but I have never seen Dwayne Pilt bother us, and I won't base my judgment on Dom's imagination. He opened the truck door and closed it quickly. The truck started as Andy climbed back into the truck bed. As John shifted on the dirt road, Lucy's wide, dark eyes tracked Andy as he sat against the cab. Why is Dwayne Pilts driving at over 80 miles an hour down the creek at 10.30 at night? That is the poignant question of the evening, Kimosabi. Andy leaned over the edge of the bed as Porky continued his snoring serenade in the bedroom, and he pulled out a shell oil map of Hancock off the bookcase. He unfolded the map and traced the road from town to Pilts' route outside the rail yard. Multiple sets of railroad tracks were designated by green dots across the top of the map. He donned a lightweight jacket and tucked the map inside his coat pocket. But as he extinguished the light, he was unsure of how the area around the creek connected to the rail yards. When he slipped out the screen door, Lucy, wearing overalls and a white sweater, carried an unlit lantern as she approached the side house. Lucy, how did you know I'd be out here? You're going to the rail yards because of the missing insulators. As a matter of fact, I am, but I think this is far too dangerous for you to be out there. All the more reason for me to show you the way. I've lived on this farm all my life. I know every square inch, every nugget of corn on every stalk. Well, that's true. Of course it's true. Can you get me to the rail yards? I can, Kimosubi. The side house lights flashed on, and with a crash against the door, Porky, in his red polka dot undershorts and sleeveless undershirt, stumbled into the yard. Lucy covered her mouth and emitted several quick giggles when Porky <coughs> belched louder than a disgruntled cow. Andy gritted his teeth and stepped back on the path. Lucy now had both hands over her mouth. Porky burped again and retreated into the side house. Well, that was just dingy said Lucy, holding her sides. Dingy? Silly. She grasped his hand and pulled him up the trail. Come on, Andy. He's a classic. She never let go all the way up the hill and into the woods. At the fair, everyone says, I have seen the future. They even have a badge that says that. Andy, did you ever wonder about the future? Too much so, I'm afraid, he said. He glanced down at her face, gray but quite visible along the trail. You seem to know a lot about the future, and you have insights other people don't have. He stopped and put his hand on her shoulder. You're the one with the gifted insight. She threw her arms around him. Her eyes glistened, and she smiled with an affection that made her hold his cheeks. He kissed her and then looked into her eyes in the gray light. 
I like you too. Lucy took his hand again and they continued down the trail. I really like you. How did you know it? I just realized it myself. She pretended to box in the air and Andy held his sides laughing. When you smacked down those two guys at the graduation. Kissing you a few seconds ago was different. She pulled him to a stop. How so, Kimosubi? He kissed her again, this time longer. Because, Miss Appel, I find you quite extraordinary. I believe there are certain things that happen in time. I read about it, some psychiatrists calling it synchronicity. They held each other close as they walked through the woods. I'm not familiar with that. Some relationships along the space-time continuum are really simultaneous occurrences that somehow are meaningfully tied together. I guess this man repeatedly came across connections, coincidences, which were connected so meaningfully that he said it could not be chance. We need to talk about Geiger getting you into college. Dad doesn't have the money, Andy. Well, you're too bright not to go to college. She put her head on his shoulder. Thank you. They walked a few meters forward before she spoke again. Does Dwayne Pilts have something to do with the fireflies? Andy steadied himself on her arm along the uneven trail. I think Dwayne Pilts may have stumbled onto something that has to do with the insulators, yes. And that is related to Dom and the radio buzz. And possibly the buzz in the gymnasium in the high school. Andy, who is JFK? You don't miss much, do you, Lucy? It's just a slip-up. And I don't believe you're a slip-up, she said with a smile. Andy pointed toward an opening in the woods. Is this the trail that leads to the creek road? Yes, and this whole thing is becoming very strange. Those glowing fireflies in the water. They reached the trail between the tree clumps. I'm worried about Jenkins and the insulator. Will he figure it out? Maybe we should tell him about Mr. Pilt. There was some reason why Pilt was driving out of control to the railroad yard. They started along the trail again. Well, we need to ask him what he knows. Andy bit his lip for a second and then remained silent down to the creek's grassy riverbanks. The wispy willow branches furrowed in the wind. How far to the railroad yard? Another half mile. He soon spotted the outline of a small bridge spanning the stream and the road winding up a wooded hill on the other side. I see the road. Paxton's Bluff. Road narrows up top and eventually becomes a path. There's a small lake up there. Farmers sometimes use it during the dry weather. Another stream feeds it. If you go farther, you'll reach the railroad tracks and the rail yards, where Dwayne Pilt's works and the insulators are missing. Exactly right. The stars shone through the breaks in the silhouetted girders as they crossed the bridge's hollow metal surface. Andy surveyed the pewter dab slope back to the Appel farm as Lucy led him forward. The little ridge tapered southward. He fixed his eyes up the dimly lit road. It was impossible to discern any tire treads or anything unusual. Lucy, he said, holding her shoulders, maybe you should go back to the farm. One thing you should know about me, Andy, I never walk away from anything. Besides, what are we going to find, a drunk railroad man? Or more insulators filled with your fireflies? Or your monkeys? She pointed to a foreboding forest branches lurking ahead. Another few hundred yards and then the road turns into the trail. Can you believe you just happened to be here when this all happened, Andy? He ran his teeth over his lower lip. 
Sometimes things happen in a way that's unique, in a way that it would never happen again in a million years. She tilted her head and was about to speak, but she pressed her lips as her eyes brightened. Synchronicity, right, but you should go back to the farm. And let you go up here alone? No, sir. Let's find out what old Mr. Pilt was racing up here for tonight. The Silver Valley fields had a beckoning, unreal quality. Iowa, it's wide open and there's freedom. It's so easy to lose freedom, Lucy. I guess all of a sudden it happens, like Hitler. No, sometimes it's more gradual, year after year. A little bit of freedom is lost, and before you know it, it's all gone. Is that the world of tomorrow, Andy? That's the theme of the fair, right? Yes, it is. Progress will prevail, I guess. I think Geiger is right, though, said Andy. The path cut through the forest ahead. Dealing with progress isn't easy. The perisphere and the trilon represent progress. You mean the white dome and the obelisk at the fair. Which is which? I get them confused. The perisphere is the white ball, and the trilon is also white and pointed like the Washington Monument. The helicline is a sloping ramp that connects them both. I can't believe we're going there. We're going there. And I told you about that parachute ride outside the main grounds. It's so high, like jumping out of the sky. We will try the parachute. We will try the parachute, yes. Andy's face tightened as she held his hand. Their shoes ground against the gravel near the woods. And I hear there is a frozen alive girl. Really frozen alive, huh? Lucy nudged him and left at the wooded road with a ridge leveled out. Yes, frozen. The crushed stones were replaced by packed dirt strewn with fallen leaves. Lucy locked her arm around his elbow. The side road where they had seen Dwayne Pilts drive recklessly into the night was visible in the clearing. It led to a flattened plateau laced with rail tracks and gravel. Some of the rail glistened silver with the rising moon. A deep vermilion glow, probably from tungsten bulbs, illuminated the warehouse window panes. Well, I see something over there, said Andy. This is the Hancock Junction rail yard she said in almost a whisper. Andy's face tightened as they descended the rocky trail that tapered to the main yard. Pilts's black Plymouth was parked behind two rail fences along the first set of tracks. Crushed cinders crunched under his shoes as they neared the tracks. I want to know what's going on in that building at this hour. He held her shoulders. This time, I'm going to tell you to wait here while I go up front. No, I'm going with you. It's imperative that nothing happens to you, please. Plus, you need to watch up here in case somebody else shows up. Well, who do you think is in there? She peeked over his shoulder. More monkeys? Somebody probably left the lights on. Stay right here by the fence, Lucy. She nodded her head and then held him. Be careful. If there's something wrong, we can call the police. Hobart? asked Andy, snickering as he went over the fence. Okay, I see your point. Stay right here by the fence. I'll be on the lookout. After climbing the wood fences, he slipped under the rusted metal gate. There were at least four sets of railroad tracks separating him and the lighted office. His heart pounded as he slinked around Pilts' empty car. He placed his fingertips on the painted hood as he peered on his tiptoes at the building windows. The blinds on all three windows were tilted down, but the slat openings had a yellow-orange sunset glow. The light projected across the porch's wood floorboards was more orange than yellow. 
Andy barely touched the clapboards as he shuffled along the porch. He leaned forward and then squinted when he reached the first window. Tools hung on racks along the far wall. Across a long table, a single human figure was silhouetted in the blinding light. Once around the building, he gazed in the front window. A wide-shouldered man with dark hair shaved to the skull sat in a wood chair in front of a long table. He wore a denim working jacket and his massive hairy hands were face down on the wood table. This man had to be Dwayne Pilt. Aligned on the far side of the table were eight blue-green luminescent insulators with orange monkeys inside. His breath fogged the window as Pilt reached for the insulator on his left. He was a bigger man than Andy had imagined, and as he lifted the small insulator in the air, the light danced across the pale green plaster. The monkeys inside the glass insulator now spun into the air. Pilt dropped the insulator to the floor and it shattered. The monkeys buzzed around him and then encircled his head. They were imperceptibly absorbed through his skull and then they were gone. When Pilch reached for the second insulator, Andy continued around the building and up to the door. He placed his hand on the steel knob, slowly twisted it and nudged the wooden door open. A blaze of orange light prompted him to shield his eyes. Pilch already had the second insulator raised upward. Andy placed his hands around the smooth long-handled steel shovel, leaning against the wallboards. Glass from the second insulator split across the floor. More monkeys surrounded Pelts and settled directly on his head. He screamed in pain and gyrated as he threw off his coat. A black wallet and an assortment of coins bounced on the wood floorboards. Pelts' yellow teeth were exposed as he babbled a series of incoherent words. His agitated, heightened eyes had a single brilliant orange pinpoint inside his pupils. Andy swung the shovel, but as he connected, a small explosion sent him back. Pilt's shoulder and left arm were vaporized to gray dust, although no blood or tissue was visible as the monkey's pervasive glow pulsed from inside the gaping wound. Pilt's face was placid, but as solid as a statue. He had a vacant grin and he waddled across the room toward Andy. Andy batted the shovel at his head. The railroad man's skull disintegrated as if it were a plaster bust. Like bees swarming from the hive, the monkeys exited through the ember-like cavity at the base of Pilts' neck. Andy backed up and pivoted as the headless body in the orange monkey trail pursued him to the outside darkness. As he sprinted to the next building, he did not know how to stop these monkeys. Down the alley between the long structures, he quickly opened a side door and locked it from the inside. A small explosion preceded Pilt smashing through the door. Andy scrambled into the next room and slammed the adjoining door. Before he reached the outside door, Pilt crashed through the center door, splintering the wood as he surged forward with the monkeys. Andy slipped on the alley's crushed cinders. He struggled to his feet, but the monkeys never exited the doorway. Backing up, he slowed and then inched his way back. Inside the building, the monkeys popped out of existence one by one. Then Pilts's dimly lit frame collapsed to fine, gray dust. Without a warm body or an electrical grid, the monkeys could not survive. More of them were inside the other insulators and probably inside the electrical grid. 
Even more unsettling was the possibility they were multiplying. He bolted out the door and then trotted toward the front building. Smashing the insulators made sense, providing he could escape the monkeys before they got into his own body. Andy gripped the doorframe and swung back into the building. The insulators buzzed with the monkeys' ever-present glow. He kicked the door shut and pulled a sledgehammer from the workbench. Once at the table, he sent the hammer crashing into the first insulator. The resulting explosion sent him back against the wall. But he lunged forward and shattered the second insulator. He swatted at the air with his free hand as the monkeys formed a tornado around his head. This time he moved to his right to avoid the blast, but the monkeys were thick in the air. More monkeys seeped into the room when he shattered the third insulator. But they were all over him like gnats on his skin. He reached for the doorknob. As if his skin were being scorched by fire flames, he rolled across the flooring and cried out inside the orange glare. His skin numbed and he lost his strength as he crawled across the wood floorboards. Wrenching in pain, he yanked the sink hose and twisted the knob. With his right hand, he grasped the rubber hose and swung it upward. He fanned water from the black hose and a mass of electrical sparks and loud cracks popped through the air, accompanied the slow cessation of burning on his skin. Gray smoke sauntered downward like fog, descending over harbor waters as the monkeys disappeared. He coughed as heavy smoke entered his lungs. As the air cleared, he clutched the table edge and lifted himself up. Chunks of green insulator glass were strewn across the wood. Water gushed over the wood. He staggered back across the room. A pungent ozone odor lingered in the air. He twisted off the water pressure and fell back against the wall. The door opened hard enough to hit the wall, and Lucy rushed over to him. Andy, what happened? I heard the explosions. Her eyes were moist. An electrical discharge. It's gone. What about Dwayne Piltz? Car was parked in the yard, but he was never here. He held her tight. You're lucky you weren't electrocuted. She gripped his arms and assisted him to his feet. His limbs were numb. As he held the doorframe, she guided him outside. The night air was fresh in his lungs and the moon slowly brightened as they retraced their route across the tracks and toward the fence. But he feared the electrical grid and the likely possibility that more monkeys were regenerating inside the connected lines. The horrific demise of Dwayne Piltz makes Andy and Lucy now aware of the obstacles ahead of them. Andy can only hope, as the Appel family along with Andy prepare for the trip to the World's Fair, that the monkeys will be left in Iowa so he can save Geiger's life. But trouble is on the horizon, as the journey back across the United States brings newer and greater problems. I'm Robert P. Fitton, being chased by the monkeys on my way back to the plane. See you next time on Fitting on the Air! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.